Amen. You guys can go ahead and be seated. Before we get going, let me first say happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Uh, I think today's text worked well for dads. It involves fire. Uh, seems like a good topic for some of the dads out there. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus 3 today where God speaks to Moses through a burning bush. I just love how God speaks to a man through fire. Uh, you can go ahead and turn to Exodus 3. In the past two weeks, we've set the scene for Exodus. Uh, Exodus 1 was heavy. Uh, it showed the brokenness of the world. We saw slavery, oppression, mass murdering, uh, a political abuse of power by Pharaoh, uh, and a, just a very dark cultural climate. And in Exodus 2, the scene shifted, and it introduced an unimpressive Moses, showing his, uh, just showing Moses' humble upbringing. And today, in Exodus 3, we see God show up in a miraculous way. Uh, something I want to point out today before we dive in is the reality of discouragement and doubt. Uh, when the task at hand, it just seems like too much. So, something I think we can all agree on is this is a very real emotion and reality. You know, we love, we love stories where people rise up against all odds. We love the rags to riches story, the Cinderella story, and the NCAA tournament, uh, which didn't happen this year, unfortunately. We love hearing of the under, underdog victories. They, they inspire us. They motivate us. Uh, they keep us go, going. Well, Exodus is one of those stories, but it's not what we would typically think. Right, we, see, we see great faith. Uh, we see great courage, but may we, not also, may we not forget that it also mixed with great doubt and fear. And the thing that makes uh, Christian courage different than the courage we see in our culture is the source of courage. Our culture says, you're great, therefore be great. Where uh, Christianity uh, says, no, actually we're weak, God is great, therefore be courageous. The, the book of Exodus has been very formative for me in my life. Uh, it was formative in my call to ministry. It's a book that has greatly shaped me and encouraged me, encouraged me to continue and press on time and time again. Why? Uh, because it shows the greatness, or it shows the weakness of man and the greatness of God. When we say, I can't do it anymore, God says, well, uh, you're right. <laughs> you can't, but God can God says, your will and your strength, they will fail, but my will and my strength, coming from God, he says, it, it, it will always prevail. It has and it always will. And so what we'll see today is God putting in front of Moses, God's putting in front of Moses a fearful mission, a difficult task that he can't accomplish in his own power. And God puts a mission in front of Moses that seems too difficult, and it seems quite literally impossible. And in our story today, uh, and leading into next week as well, in chapter 4, God shows his miraculous power and his character mixed in with Moses' doubt and fear. And so what we'll see today as our main idea is that God calls imperfect people to carry out his, his mission of redemption. Over and over again, we see God use unimpressive people, full of doubt and full of fear, to carry out an incredible mission. And when God does this, it beautifully highlights the greatness of God and the smallness of man. Over the next two weeks, in Exodus 3 and 4, we're going to see God's mission specifically highlighted while also seeing the weakness of Moses. Uh, and I think it will be a great encouragement for us. And so with that said, today we're going to walk through our story. We're going to look more heavily on God's mission. And I'm going to point out five things that we see about God's mission specifically and God's call to this mission. 
And because, of, because there's five of them, uh, I'm going to give you those five as we go, uh, because I want to go ahead and get into the text and start reading it. So look with me in, chapter, in Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is what God's Word says. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So Moses was a shepherd, uh, which was not the most prestigious job of the day. Uh, We know from the end of the book of Genesis that Egyptians, they didn't like shepherds uh, much during this time. So Moses was a bit of a misfit by the time he got to Egypt. Uh, But here we see this idea of shepherding in the Bible uh, was starting to be developed. We know that pastors today are often referred to as shepherds. We know that Jesus is often referred to as the great or the chief shepherd. And then Moses, a lowly shepherd, sees the angel of the Lord. He sees it out of a burning bush. And Moses, (laughs) I think he does what, uh, he gives a typical man response. I think it's kind of funny. He saw the angel of the Lord in a burning bush. In verse 2 it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And what's funny to me is what catches Moses' attention. It wasn't the angel of the Lord that appeared to him, uh, but but rather he's amazed that the the bush has not been consumed. If you've ever watched me build a fire, uh, you may get why this is funny. Uh, Every time I build a fire, I just stare at it. I'm just gazing at the fire, looking at every little piece of wood in the fire, mesmerized by the fire, inspecting it. And at this point, it appears that, that maybe he's doing the same thing. He's, it appears that he's not blatantly, it's, it's not, it was not blatantly obvious to him what was going on, which makes me a little bit curious of what he actually saw. Uh, was it just fire? Possibly. Was there some sort of a human, like, human-like angelic being coming out of the fire? Uh, maybe, but I think doubtful, uh, just because of he, what, what he saw. But we, we don't really know. It doesn't say. And then, uh, as he's inspecting the bush, God speaks to Moses, and Moses responds, Here I am. Which is pretty basic, nonchalant response. Uh, it would be similar to us, just like if someone says something to us, we say, Yes. Uh, when spoken to Moses. So Moses just got spoken to by a bush that's on fire, and he's like, yeah, what's up? And then God says in verse 5, don't come near, take your sandals off. This ground is holy. And then God says to Moses in verse 6, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then it dawned on Moses, wait a second, this is God. This is the God that created the world. And then Moses became fearful, and it says he turned his face away. A few things that we see here as a preface. Uh, The first thing we see worth noting is that God pursued Moses. We saw at the end of chapter 2 that God saw and God heard, and he heard Israel's cry, and his response was to come to an unimpressive Moses, and he pursued him. He pursued him right where he was in the middle of his unimpressiveness, showing that our God is a pursuing God. And he's a God that pursues in brokenness, in weakness, and it's not based on any merit of our own. 
I don't know where you find yourself today, but here, this is good news for you, that God is on a pursuit of your life. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, God is relentlessly pursuing you. And this is, this is such good news. And then we see God's holiness. We see this uh, relentlessly pursuing God is perfectly holy. He came in fire, showing both the awe and the fear of God. And when we see fire, when we look at fire, we know, uh, we can feel it. We can feel that it produces uh, heat, and we can see that it provides light. Uh, we know that uh, fire is needed for cooking. It, it, it gets out, it, cl- it purifies and cleanses out the bacteria in food. We know that fire is good. It provides, a, there's a sense of awe that comes with fire. While at the same time, knowing that, you know, we know that the fire is good, but at the same time, those that handle fire also need to fear it. It's not, it's not to be played with. It's to be taken seriously. And God, through the fire in his pursuit, is making this very clear to Moses. As he's about to unveil the mission that he has for Moses, bringing up our very first point, uh, the holiness of God is the foundation for the mission of God. The holiness of God is the foundation for the mission of God. We know, we know that God is about to call Moses to a great task, but the foundation of this call, the foundation of his call is God's holiness. There's a reverence and there's a fear that must first be established. If God is not seen as holy, if God is not feared, if the foundation of God's call is not God himself, and it's not, there's not a love of God and a reverence of his holiness, when the, when the task becomes difficult or burdensome, the temptation is just going to be to throw in the towel and give up. But knowing that the God of the universe has called Moses, has made it very clear to Moses that this is a call from the creator God, the, God that, the same God that gave an incredible promise to Abraham, that gave them a child when it seemed impossible, that gave them a child when it was laughable. The God that provided for Isaac and his family in a famine. This is coming from the God that made an incredible promise of great blessing for Jacob. And then we see at the end of Genesis, we, we see that God turns Joseph terrible incidents of being, instead of being sold into slavery by his brothers, we see that God turned it around and God used it for his good purposes. So just as we think about the, the context of this, think about the courage and the faith and reverent fear that this put into Moses when God showed this to, him, showed this to Moses and said this to Moses, reminding him that God can be trusted, that God provides, that God blesses, and that God is good. Faith in God and his holiness, his character, is essential for the mission of God. I've got, I've got something that's a little long. I want, to, I want you to follow along with me. It says, if we lose sight of the infinite wisdom of God and put our foundation on the finite wisdom of man, the mission that God puts in front of his people will crumble at the sight of fear, discomfort, or confusion. May we not forget that God's mission and purpose is founded on God's holiness. God's mission and purpose is founded on the character of God and not on the wisdom and foresight of finite humans. Listen, when, when holiness and wisdom and reverence and character of God is the basis of our mission, we can trust that any unforeseen circumstances and any human imperfections that we may have, when, they were, these things were not unforeseen by the God who made the call. This is no accident that the very first thing God did to Moses and for Moses before he called Moses was to put him in reverent fear of his holiness. And as we know, the unforeseen challenges that we see later after, you know, later in the book of, of Exodus that are ahead of Moses, they were great. May we not forget and be reminded uh, that the holiness of God is the basis for God's call and the sustaining power of the call for his imperfect people 
And then we look what God says next to Moses. He gives uh, the specifics of the call starting in verse 7. It says this, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a place good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress me. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So in verse 7, he reminds Moses that he understands the situation at hand. God sees what's happening. He sees the affliction of his people. He knows their suffering. He's heard their cry. He's reminding Moses that God sees, God knows, and God hears. While also reminding us today that God is aware of what's going on in the world. He is also aware of what is going on in our very lives, and God is not surprised by it. And then in verse 8, we see that God says, He came down. He came down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring his people, the Israelites, up out of the land to a good and broad land, and the land flowing with milk and honey. How convenient. Uh, Let's not miss this. God came down to earth to deliver his people and bring them to what is good. So God, perfect in his holiness, he came down to a broken humanity. We see this in the book of Exodus. He came down to a broken humanity to provide redemption and to rescue his people out of bondage, out of slavery from the Egyptians. So this should remind us and point us to how Jesus came down to earth to deliver his people, to rescue his people from a broken humanity, to rescue his people from the bondage of sin and to bring his people to what is good and to provide redemption and rescue for his people through his life, death, and resurrection. And then verse 9, we see again the interpersonal nature of God, uh, the the friendship of God. It says, the the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. He's seen the oppression of his people, seeing yet again that God is not distant. God is not absent. God is present. God knows the struggles of his people. And and we see that Moses has heard from God out of a burning bush. He's heard the great uh, extravagant vision saying he will deliver his people out of bondage to a great land with milk and honey. And Moses, I'd assume at this point, is like, yeah, this sounds great. That's awesome, God. Do it. Uh, This is going to be great. Cheering on God. And then in verse 10, God says to Moses, "Uh, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. How, how, think about how alarming this may have been. Hey, hey, hey lowly Mo, Moses, misfit Moses, I'm sending you to a powerful Pharaoh. I'm going to use you to do something great. Which leads us to our second point. God came down to send out the called. God came down to send out the called. God came down to earth, we see here in Exodus, to send Moses. He's painting a picture. He's foreshadowing how God later came down to earth in the form of a man named Jesus to reveal his holiness and his perfection, to later send out those that he has called that we see in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We see here from the very beginning of Exodus that God is a sending God. God calls people not based on their merit, not based on their social standing, not based on their education, their background, their position, or their skill. 
Again, God calls people simply on the foundation of God's power and God's holiness, and then he sends them out to carry out his mission. May we not miss that God is ascending God to deliver his people out of slavery. We see throughout the entire Bible that God is ascending God and sends people for all sorts of tasks. In the book of Genesis, Joseph was sent to save lives from famine. Here in the book of Exodus, Moses was sent to deliver his people from slavery. Later in the Bible, Elijah was sent to influence politics. Jeremiah and the prophets were sent to proclaim God's word. Paul and Barnabas were sent for famine relief and to preach the gospel and to plant churches. Titus was sent to establish order in a messed up church. God calls every single Christian to make disciples. But how that looks will be different for everyone. Some will preach the gospel while feeding the hungry. Some will preach the gospel while helping widows and orphans. Some will preach the gospel uh, while doing justice ministries like defending the unborn, fighting against sex slavery, and advocating against racial injustice. We know that some are sent to bring healing and restoration through counseling, and we also know that God sends some to plant churches and some to be missionaries among the unreached peoples. And many will do multiple of these at the same time. But the point is, God sins for various reasons. And in each way he sins, his ambition is to display his power, his character, and his love. And he does it, as we've seen, by sending imperfect people. We may not miss it. God has called each Christian to make disciples of all nations, while also giving specific and targeted ambitions. Every Christian has a generic call to do each of these, but some God has given a holy ambition to specifically target one or two of these with greater fervor. And this is the beauty of the church. And so I must ask, what neighbor or coworker is God sending you to? What family member or friend or stranger is God calling you into for restoration? What cause has God given you an extra ambition for to be a minister of reconciliation as the church? We should celebrate this and encourage and spur one another on to be ministers of redemption in a broken world. God came down to earth to send out his people out into the world, and we see it here in the book of Exodus. God just told Moses he's sending him for a great and a mighty task that seems impossible. And then Moses responds. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, How am I that I, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I love, I love this. Moses acknowledges his inadequacy, he, he, acknowledge, uh, he acknowledges his lack of influence. And God just told Moses, I'm going to do something great. I'm going to do something miraculous. I'm going to use you to do it. And Moses, he's in shock of what God has called him to do. In verse 11, it says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? If I were Moses, I'd be thinking, what in the world am I, like a shepherd, going to do to convince Pharaoh? What am I going to do to Pharaoh to, get, to convince him to get rid of all the slaves? I'd be thinking, hey, hey God, uh, did you know that Pharaoh's economy was built on the back of slaves? Uh, what's little old me going to do? Like, are my sheep, sheep going to scare them away? God, I'm, I'm not sure if you knew this or not, but uh, sheep aren't exactly the greatest uh, military might. They don't show any sense of force. You know, sheep are dumb and fearful. So how exactly is this going to work, right? This would be like a, a single farmer 
uh, trying to overthrow an entire military. I think we can agree that the odds are, are not in his favor. And then in verse 12, God answers and says, I will be with you. I'm going with you. That's how it's going to work. And then, and then God says to Moses, uh, let, this, let this be a sign. Don't forget how I've, how I've called you to this task. Don't forget how I revealed myself to you. Moses, I am with you. Remember, I'm holy. I'm trustworthy. I'm faithful. Which shows us our third point. God goes with those he sends. This language uh, in Exodus may sound familiar to you. Later, after Jesus' death and resurrection in the gospel accounts, Jesus gives them a task, which we now call the Great Commission. It's a difficult task to make disciples all over the world. And right before he gives his disciples the task to make disciples of all nations, it's prefaced with, I'm with you always. Not, I'm with you when it's good. It's not, uh, or I'm with you when, we can see, when you can see me working or when you understand everything. No, he's with us always in the good and the bad, in the highs and the lows, in clarity and confusion, in our times of great faith, in our times of doubt and unbelief. God is with us always. God didn't give the disciples nor Moses a detailed plan of what he would do at the outset. He said, I'll be with you so we can trust that God, the God that calls imperfect people and sends out imperfect people, God also goes with those same imperfect people. And then Moses brings up uh, a perceived problem, starting in verse 13. This is a little bit longer, so try to follow along with me here. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord... The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has, a, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So let's imagine this scenario from Moses. I've got little old shepherd Moses going to the people of Israel who are enslaved by powerful Pharaoh saying, Hey, God spoke to me. It was out of a bush through fire. Can you imagine what's going through his head at this time? I would have all sorts of fears. Uh, but, but Moses says, if they ask, uh, if Moses says, if they ask for God's name, what do I say? Like, what do I say? And Moses, in, the, in this moment, he's, he's essentially asking God, hey, God, what's your name? Asking God, what do I say? And God says, I'll tell them my name. He said, tell them my name in verse 14. Tell them, he says, tell them I am who I am. And then he says in verse 15, tell them I'm the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Tell them, uh, this God has sent me to you. 
Tell them, the, tell them these words in verse 14, I am who I am. These three words I am, are, in the, are three words in the original Hebrew language and are considered uh, the most discussed words in the Old Testament. So what does this phrase mean, I am who I am? Honestly, we're not really sure. There's a great mystery in this. Uh, it's a simple statement that's deep and wide in meaning. Uh, it's, it shows who God is. It shows his character. It shows his characteristics. You know, we could probably say I am who I am, meaning that uh, God is self-existent. God does not depend on anything. Everything that exists is sustained by God himself. Where God does not change, God is always the same. In some ways, uh, some, some have said this phrase conveys the meaning of uh, what, is it, what does it even matter who I am? I'm God. In a sense saying, your question can't even be answered. <laughs> I, I, I'm God. I am. I'm everything. And then to further it, God says in verse 15, I'm the Lord. It's, it's, I'm Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob. And, and so in my best, my best effort to try to explain this, uh, when Moses asked God what he's to say to the Israelites, God is saying, tell them, the one who is in all things, over all things, before all things, after all things, holds all things, sees all things, hears all things, and knows all things. The God who has proven himself faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God that has made promise after promise and kept promise after promise. The same God has spoken and said, I see what is happening to you in Egypt and has promised that he will bring us out of Egypt. And when you tell the leaders of Israel this, they will believe you. And they will go with you to encounter Pharaoh. So get this, God is speaking to Moses out of fire. Uh, Moses is in awe and wonder and reverent fear, listening to God. He's just given Moses a terrifying mis- mission, and God asks, what do I say? And God essentially says, tell them who I am. Tell them of the, the grandeur of my majesty. Tell them of my greatness, reminding him and the people of Israel that God's name is sufficient, which leads us to our fourth point. God's name is powerful. God's name is powerful. This is, so, this is so important for us today. May we not lose sight of the value of hearing of the grandeur and the glory of God, of who God is, his character, his grandness, and his faithfulness. When we ask, how do, how do we spur on God's people to mission? God says, tell them of my great name. Tell them of my glory. And to take it a step further, may we not lose sight of the power that is in the name of Jesus. This specific instance in Exodus 3 that we just read, it was used specifically for God's people to be spurred on towards God's mission. But may we not lose sight of the importance of God's name for those who do not believe in God. Philippians 2.10 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. (laughs) Praise God. Praise God for the saving power of the name of God, the name of Jesus. Although the name of God in Exodus is a bit mysterious, the name of Jesus, it is not mysterious. Everything that I am in Exodus stands for and means it was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus was and is the great I am. When we want to know what the name of God means, when he describes his name as I am, we look to Jesus for understanding. Jesus was in all things, before all things, and over all things. We see that in the book of Colossians. 
when we speak the name of Jesus, when we tell of his grandeur and his power and his love and his grace and his mercy and his justice, how Jesus was the sinless Savior of the world that was perfectly holy in his character, that was completely gracious in his pursuit, how he was merciful through the death on the cross, and how he was perfectly powerful by overcoming the grave, by defeating sin and death, how Jesus rose from the dead and provided freedom for the captive and freedom for those in bondage to sin. Listen, if that is you, if you are watching online, if you are here in us, if you are here among us, if you know the weight and bondage of your sin, know this. God came down to earth to redeem it and to take it and to bring restoration to your life. And the first step is trusting in the name of Jesus, putting your faith in Jesus Christ, believing in his powerful name, that his work on the cross, it was sufficient. I pray that if you have not, if you're listening online, that you would trust in that today. If you're, if, if you're here in person, let us know. We want to talk with you. If you're online, if you're, if you're just stumbled upon this video or this audio, we want, to, we want to hear from you. We want to talk with you. And then when we believe this and trust it, we can speak of it. When we speak of God's glorious name, God begins to do what is impossible, and God begins to make dead hearts live. God begins to make hard hearts soften. God begins to come in and reconcile and redeem and rescue broken relationships and broken families in a broken culture and a broken world. May we not forget that God does this through broken people. When Moses comes in and asks God, what do I say? What's my message? He said, tell my people my name. And when we today are given our mission, when we ask, what do we say? God tells us our message is to proclaim God's name. God's, God's name has the power to move people, to move people from darkness to light, to move people towards repentance, towards relational reconciliation, towards marital reconciliation, towards social reconciliation, and towards racial reconciliation. May we not lose sight of the saving, restoring, and reconciling power of the gospel that is found through the person and work in the name of Jesus Christ. May, may we not lose sight of this. We are given a holy ambition, a holy mission, and it's equipped with a holy message, message and it's backed by a holy God. And Satan, the world's deceiver, he trembles at it. May we speak this name with power and grace and confidence. May we not lose sight and wonder of the powerful name of God. Moses was empowered by God, uh, by, by, by God telling him of his great name, and so are we today. As imperfect people, we are empowered with the powerful name that is Jesus Christ. And look what happens next in verses 19 and 20. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So let's recap here again. God came to lowly Moses in a burning bush. He gave him a mission and he was seem- that was seemingly impossible and says, your job is to go and speak my name to my people and my people will follow you. And then you and my people will go up to Pharaoh. Uh, but guess what? You can't actually do anything. We just read in verse 19, the king of Egypt will not let you go unless you're compelled by a mighty hand unless compelled by a mighty hand, saying, Moses, Israel, you are powerless to save yourself out of bondage, out of slavery. And then God lets them know 
although you can't do it, I will do it with my hand. Verse 20 says, God will strike Egypt with all the wonders, and then Pharaoh will let you go. Which leads us to our last point. Only the power of God can save. God's people are given a holy mission by a holy God to proclaim a holy message, message, but God's people are completely powerless to accomplish the task at hand. The people of God are called to obedience and faithfulness to respond to God's call, but only the mighty hand and wonders of God will there be any fruitfulness in the call. There is great beauty in this complexity. We see the limited power of our humanness. We see the overwhelming power of God's hand. And our response today as the church should be the same posture that Moses had when he encountered the burning bush of awe and fear and humility and dependence on God to move and to redeem a broken world. You see, church, as we, as we close out our time, I want to call us uh, to remember that we are called as Christians, to a life of faithfulness and obedience. We are called uh, to proclaim the reconciling, saving, and redeeming message of the gospel. The message of the gospel that calls people out of darkness, out of, out of bondage of sin, and the saving relationship with Jesus Christ under the redeeming power of God's people. We are, spirit, we are called to obedience, to faithfulness, and we are le- but we are left dependent on the incredible wonder of the hand of God to move in power. As God told Moses when he asked how this this impossible task would be accomplished, God said, I will will be with you. I, I will go with you. May we not lose sight of this. God has chosen to use his people, his broken, unimpressive people, to bring about redemption in the world. To see people to respond in saving faith and then to see the same, that same, uh, those same lives change through the saving faith. We've been saying this from the very beginning. The gospel saves us and the gospel changes us. We need the, we need the mighty hand of God to move in miraculous power. To, to see people respond in saving faith and to see lives change and to make us more like Jesus. We need the mighty hand of God to move in miraculous power, to see broken relationships unified, to see marriages restored, to see the racist become racially reconciled, to see the greedy to become generous, and to see the apathetic become zealous. Every single one of us in this room need to continually search out our hearts and continually reprint of pride and anger and greed and racism and sexual sin and spiritual apathy. May we not be fooled and think we are exempt or completely free from any of this. To think that racism and greed and pride do not exist in our hearts and in our world is to ignore the work of the enemy. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. God has decided to use us as broken people to bring about reconciliation in our broken world. The gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient and essential for salvation and it's also sufficient and essential for everyday life and godliness. We are finite humans. We are called by a holy God for a holy mission with a holy message, and we are completely dependent on the wonders of God's mighty hand to move in power. Brothers and sisters, New City Church, what a privilege. What a call. May we be put on our faces 
in great humility and confidence, anticipating and awaiting God's great redemption. This is God's call for his imperfect people. What a glorious call. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you to come into our hearts. We need to see your greatness. We need to be put on our faces by your holiness. Father, would we be in awe of who you are? Would we see the grandeur of your majesty? And would it, when, we, when we think and we, when, we, when we wonder and we, we're amazed by the name of Jesus Christ, would we be propelled into God's mission? But Father, we're powerless without you. Father, you have decided to use us to bring about redemption and reconciliation in the world, and it comes through the powerful hand and the miraculous works of Jesus Christ. Father, we need you. Would you help us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.